We pay for what we value, and we don't value childcare. We don't value early childhood education, and we don't pay for it. It's, it's what women do, and there's not a real value, financial value to it, that is hugely critical. Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. But in this show, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. That was today's guest, Susan Magsamen, you heard from in the intro. Susan is the executive director of the International Arts and Mind Lab at the Brain Science Institute for Johns Hopkins University. The International Arts and Mind Lab, or IAM Lab, is committed to amplifying human potential to shape and grow the neuroaesthetics field with a goal to empower researchers and practitioners with impact-based thinking that will change the way we think today and enhance the way we live tomorrow. In our conversation, we talked about the evolving relationship of parents, the importance of lifelong learning, and the idea that it's simply never too late to make an impact. So I was sort of thinking a lot about where to start and I keep a lot of like thoughts, kind of digital journaling over the years. And so I, I kind of went back through because I thought, you know, I, I know I've, this, is, this has been a through line for me as family and, you know, I always have worked with families and, and then, you know, sometimes I feel like it's a busman's holiday where it's like, you know, I don't work with my family because I'm working with mm-hmm. other families. And, mm-hmm. and so just like, you know, how do you balance that, you know, what you do and what you know and how you sort of bring it home. So I found this sort of, um, not really a book, but it's kind of like a manuscript that I called Little Things, Small Moments That Matter in the Life of My Family. Mm. And I was like, whoa. So I started reading it over the last couple of days. And I, I kind of think like <clears throat> that's maybe the topic of this conversation is for me, you know, in this moment, it really does come down to the little things. Yeah. And, you know, life is so busy. And um, and some of these big, grand, sweeping gestures or these big moments um, that could be perfect happen, but they, they're not the things that life is mostly made up of. Like, you're, I'm grateful when I have a, a perfect moment and a big moment. But I think it's more that sort of tender beauty encourage every day that and taking those small little moments to just say that's a piece that's a piece and, and together they kind of make life mm. so I kind of was thinking that might be a place to start it's really interesting and it's beautiful too like I know we all use that expression of like oh the devil's in the details and I know one of the things that I try to remember is that love is also in the details and and I think what you're describing is aligned with that, like that the the moments we have with our kids or or or, with, or at work, right? Anywhere, you can think about the big macro view of what you're doing, but it's 
it's the day-to-day, how you treat people, how you're engaging, the, the small moments of, you know, helping someone or even saying thank you that actually can have, in some ways, the most impact. Well, it's such an aesthetic, right? When you see a smile, you walk into a room and somebody smiles as opposed to their on their cell phone or, or texting or, you know, it's those, the way that you invite someone or you welcome someone in just something as small as a smile. Um, and, you know, and that harkens back to babies. You know, the smile of the baby to me is its survival instinct, right? Mm. You know, it's like as soon as that baby smiles, your heart rate goes down and your oxytocin goes crazy. And, you know, you just want more of that. You know, it's like it's, the, it's a reward. And I think setting, you know, thinking about that and in, in all of those interactions, you know, that's when, when, you know, I can, I still think of holding my son's hand and how he would just reach down and hold my hand when we move into a new situation. Um, and it was just like, you're there. And, and that shifted everything as opposed to going into a space on your own or, you know, transition, you know, and we have a billion transitions all the time and what comforts, you know, you or your children or other loved ones in transitions, um, because they're happening all the time. When you're ready to make a hire for your small business, you naturally want to find the best person for the job. And the odds are really good that the best person is on LinkedIn. Here are some things about LinkedIn I think you should know. LinkedIn Jobs makes it super easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. They use knowledge of hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. That means that your LinkedIn job matches are based on skills and background for sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way you get to focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. People go to LinkedIn every single day to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com forward slash 43% and you'll get $50 off your first job post. L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N.com forward slash 43-P-E-R-C-E-N-T. That's linkedin.com forward slash 43% and you'll get $50 off today. Remember, terms and conditions apply. is brought to you in part by Beta Brand. 
While I would love to get to the gym every day, it's not always possible for me. On those super busy days, being able to get up and stretch can make a huge difference in my mood. That's why I'm so excited to let you know about Beta Brand and their dress pant yoga pants. I just received my first pair and I love them. Here's the thing, they're dressy looking enough to pass for traditional dress pants. No one will ever know you're wearing yoga pants, but they're just as comfy as yoga pants. So you can sit all day and feel like you can breathe, but they're also functional enough that when I do have a second, I can get up and stretch. It's amazing. The dress pant yoga pant is ultra comfy, it's wrinkle resistant, and it has faux zippers, pockets, front buttons, and super cute belt loops. I personally love the bootcut style, but they have options for everyone. Skinny, cropped, multiple length options, and more. There's a variety of colors to choose from, and there's also seasonal color options. If you like to be comfy, sporty, and professional at the same time, you're just going to love Beta Brand. Visit betabrand.com forward slash percent to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants today. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com forward slash P-E-R-C-E-N-T. You're going to love them, I promise. So, and you're obviously an expert in early childhood development and in brain research. And how how important are those types? How much how important is that smile or that eye contact, like in child development? How how much does that relate to the ability to learn? It's one hundred percent essential. Um, you you can't learn if you don't feel safe. You can't learn if your um, sensory and motor system is so stimulated or overstimulated that you're just trying to um, consciously or unconsciously remember to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, 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 if you overwrought those systems, you can't learn, um, let alone comfort yourself or do all those really important things that have to happen in order to um, engage in the world, gain new skills, gain new knowledge, build agency and capacity. So without that, it's chemically impossible. You know, when kids are little and they start to build this sort of synapses that ultimately becomes the pathways for greater learning and greater knowledge um, in lots of different domains, you know, whether that's math or reading ability or social emotional learning, you know, higher cognitive order things. If they're not building those healthy synapses, it means they ultimately don't have as great a capacity to be able to do those things downstream. So front end loaded for little kids is important, but it, but it's also never too late. And I think that's another really important message is, you know, early childhood development is super important. Prenatal care is really, really important to help the child start um, in life with the most resources possible, you know, biological, emotional, physical resources possible. But it's also never too late to really put in those systems and structures and routines that are multi-sensory, that are about time and space, that help to create those rituals I mean, and, and tradition to move. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that it's never too late. Let's say that 
you have a child who was lacking in some quality early childhood care and didn't develop those things, what are some things that can be done to introduce that later in life, whether that's in elementary school or or even as late as the teenage years or older? What are some things that a caregiver or a teacher or, or a friend could, could do or an individual could do to sort of realign those things? Well, I think the most important ingredient for any kind of help in changing a behavior or being aware of a skill that needs to be developed is trust. If a child or a young adult or anybody doesn't feel like they're in a trusted relationship, they're not going to take risks and they're not mm-hmm. going to look at what might could change. Um, so I think that's number one. I also think that basic things like making sure someone is well rested, is you know physically active, is you know having those sort of sort of basics, is eating well, sort of thinking about those things as sort of basics before you start to move into trying to address something that you might see as a skill requirement. But when you get to the skill that you think someone may be lacking, I think it's really helpful to approach those kinds of things without assumption. A lot of times the way someone's operating may be working for them better than you know. And so I think it's always good to really try to understand what the person that you're talking with or working with needs. And with little kids, that's obviously a little bit harder, but it's not like, you know, it's a checklist that says, okay, well, they've got the, um, the um, math skill, but now they need the social emotional skill mm-hmm. or you know, these things are sort of the alchemy of those things come together. I'm really been interested in my work um, for many years in an asset based model, not a deficit model. So it's not, for me, it's not what you don't have. It's what you do have. It's not what's a matter with you, but what matters to you. Mm. And, and, and that changes everything when you come to someone and you, you say, you know, you want to get this thing done. You know, how would you approach it? What are the skills that you would use to take that on and help them build on what they already have? And it's amazing when you start to build on your strengths, other things tend to come online. You know, but I'll use a maybe a more poignant example. Let's say that you've worked with a kid and they, your child, and you know they've decided that you know not decided, but they are using technology more than you want them to. Like they're bringing it to the table, mm-hmm. they're bringing it everywhere. They're looking at their email. Like everybody, a role modeling is super important, and two, just making some family rules, like sitting down and saying, it's really important for me to have this time together. And um, let's talk about sort of how everybody would feel comfortable with that. And, you know, initially they might say, you know, oh, you're silly. We don't care. Everybody's doing it. That's Mm -hmm. my favorite. But what about this guy? But I think if you start to say this is important to me and, you know, can we find a way to reach that? Once you have that agreement, then it's a lot easier to come back and say, you know, okay, this is kind of where we were. This is what we said we're going to do. and reminding people gently that this is kind of where we are. And then behavior starts to change because when you take something out mm-hmm. and then you start to put in conversation, playing games, you know, taking walks, listening to music, like it's harder to take something away when you're not replacing it. And when you're replacing it with something better that creates that social connection, that makes someone feel seen, that is not passive, you know, like there are a lot of things with technology that seem to be feel interactive, but in reality, a lot of technology is 
observational, mm-hmm. not engaging. And so when you start to play a card game and then you reference, you come back and reference sort of, you know, the strategy of that game. We're big Scrabble players here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, a lot of times that'll bleed into lots of conversations where it's like, oh my God, did you know, do you know what that word means? We like to look up words. So you start to have relationships, not just transactions, but transformational engagement. And, and that just, so then I think that sort of idea of changing something, you know, or addressing something kind of falls back to how do we help each other be the best people that we can be? And I'm learning from my kids all the time. Like sometimes they bring me to my knees and what I think I knew, but I just, connected the dots in a way that wasn't the way that they were connecting the dots. And so there's, I think there's great humility in raising your kids when you can see it as everybody's learning all the time. And if there's an, if there's an agreement that we're all learning and that, I don't know, the mom, I think a lot of moms feel like one more thing they have to do. And I try to not do that because yeah. it's just too heavy. It's too heavy of a burden. I was telling someone recently, I've, I've been trying to remind myself, like when, you know, you're frustrated because someone left a sock on the floor, or whatever's going on that day, that, you know, all these things, all these people, all this chaos are all things that I wished for at some point. And so, you know, just shifting that mindset from something I have to do to something I get to do or that I'm privileged to do. Um really trans like just flips my entire mood um and i found too that to your point about building on assets which i just think is such a helpful way of thinking and putting it because when i go down a path of don't do this or don't do that or if you like conditional things of if you do this i'll take something away nothing good seems to come out of that for me or for my family but if i can focus on appreciative inquiry and focus on what's working whether that's at home or at work um i've i've been finding that more good things happen when i'm like oh how did how did you do that that was great let's do more of that versus all the things i don't want so i don't know if you're seeing that as well and you know you were talking earlier about how one of the things you've been giving thought to is the idea of like you had care you had to provide, you know, find care for your kids while you were developing strategies to care for their kids and sort of the, just the, it's an interesting point. And I know I've felt, I've had similar experiences of, you know, I'm building a company focused on education, but I'm, you know, having someone else watch my kids during that time. And, and I've been trying to think a lot lately, and I love your thoughts on this, on, you know, as we're, as we as women are out there and doing more every day to be able to go do whatever job is available and, and build, you know, go for the best version of ourselves and in leadership positions or whatever that might be. Um, I sometimes wonder if we are, if we have as a society still continued to devalue some of the, the strengths and, and, expertise that's needed to be high quality early childcare professionals and teachers. And, you know, if this is an opportunity in our society to start to think about how do we bring the, the salaries for those positions up? How do we, how do we as a society start to say those are, those jobs have value and they're, they're important. Um, and I, I still feel like it's something we treat as secondary, or at least I still see people treating it that way. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think we pay for what we value mm-hmm. and we don't value childcare. We don't value early childhood education and we don't pay for it. I think there's a very female feminine aspect of that, which is mothers 
have babies, mothers primarily took care of children, um, you know, from the beginning of time as uh, fathers were, you know, hunter hunting and gathering and bringing food back. And I think there's a very evolutionary beginning to that. But as, you know, cultures have changed, I think this very deep belief system that, you know, women are, it's, it's what women do and there's not a real value, financial value to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I think that, that is hugely critical. And it's, it's also a little bit like water, you know, moms take care of their kids. They are the ones that, you know, pr- are primarily still the predominant um, care provider. Even if they're working, they're the ones that are organizing the nanny and making sure that all the play dates are made and mm-hmm. making sure that a lot of the things that around the home are taken care of, even though they may have a full-time job just as their spouse does. And so I think it's really important to look at it from a societal point of view and to, I think, begin to start to break apart what is really uh, an implicit bias around women and childcare. And, you know, if women say this and they say, oh, well, you're not a really good mother or you're, you know, um, it's so pejorative, but I I think it makes it really super difficult. You know, nursing, the the field of nursing in the seventies, basically the nurses said, you know, we're done. We're not going to keep doing all these jobs and more without being valued. And there were nursing strikes, you know, there was a lot of things that happened and nurses Uh, Because hospitals and doctors and patients saw that without this workforce, they were in trouble because they were carrying the load. And Johnson & Johnson got behind nursing, which was good for Johnson & Johnson, too, Mm -hmm. because nurses make a lot of decisions. But I feel like, you know, early childhood as a field really needs to have more of an advocacy and policy perspective. And I think it needs to push a lot harder. I mean, think about the the gun lobbies, you know, if you can still have a gun unregulated, think about the lobbying muscle behind that compared to taking care of our most valuable resource and which is human capital. It's Mm -hmm. the future human capital. And it makes me angry. It's, It's just abominable. I do think the fact that there are more women in the Senate Oh, sorry, in the Congress than ever. And I think, you know, moving that way towards the Senate is really good in the country and across in states and, and local government. So I think we're seeing that change, but it's critical. And, you know, I think more women are saying, you know, look, I, I love my kids. I'm a great mom. And I'm also, uh, you know, a great uh, manager or a great CEO or a great you know, worker in whatever I'm doing and, and, and that there needs to be equity in that. So I, yeah, I totally agree. You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring stories. So I want to tell you about a show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick butt wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. 
So take a listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, and I still hear this from different people, it, this idea that, oh, well, you're just watching that child for a little bit. And it's, it's sort of like, well, yes, yeah, so if you're just getting someone in their job is to make sure that nobody dies for an hour, okay, that's, that's a different level of responsibility than if, actually, that's kind of a big responsibility, making sure no one dies, <laughs> but, um, but that's different than looking at this as a, a small person or a small human who, to your point, is always learning. And it's like the educator's job to, to help them learn and to help them on that journey so that they might go on to do whatever is, is meaningful or important for them. And I think that's just a, that's not a skill that just people are born with just because they become a mother or because they're a father. I don't think that means that you naturally have that ability to help somebody learn. Um, and so I wish it was something that we as a society valued more because I think we'd see it. I think we'd see a big difference in how kids learn at older grades if there was more um, value put around, you know, from a society standpoint. And I think you'd see men come into the field if their money was there, right? I think if, because yep. right now, I mean, if I, I've never gone into it, I can't think of a childcare center I've gone into where I've seen men sitting on the floor. I don't know if you can. But. You know, it's interesting. I agree completely. Teaching in schools of education or where there is early childhood training, there's very little even in those places that talk about brain development. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming, but schools of education are really behind in um, how they train educators um, to begin with. It's very little, um, and science of learning is a field that's growing, but it's, it hasn't sort of you know transformed education. And parent education, parents don't know as much about how their child's brain is developing um, as maybe they should too. And so when you think about, well, you know, what is parenting, what is, what is um, early learning different or same as, as child care, which I think people really confuse the two sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they're all in, they're very much all in one. But if we really were raising the, the awareness about that role of um, early childhood and, and made it possible for families to have great, child care through employers. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that I think, you know, you can leverage that to be able to have even more time as a parent at home, if that's what you choose. But there's a financial incentive for that, as opposed to it really costing you your career or your path to do that. And there's so many trade-offs that I think are unnecessary, but this brain development piece, I think is, is critically important. And then how do you, or as a parent or a child, early childhood person or an educator, how are you always continuing to learn about that? You know, personalized learning is mm -hmm. like personalized medicine. Kids learn differently. Refining your craft as a parent or an educator, I think it's also super important. Like, like you're saying, when you step back and you think about it and you gain some knowledge and you come back to the situation, you're coming back with a new skill set. You're coming mm -hmm. back with a new point of view. And I think that's great. And so, you know, you talked earlier too about the importance of feeling safe and feeling that there's a, 
a, like a relationship of trust. Can you share some thoughts on, you know, the ability to make mistakes in learning and where, where you see that fitting into all of this? I was talking to someone the other day who was mentioning how, you know, culturally she grew up in a place where they were they were taught to to really make sure that the kids were able to make mistakes. And she uses that now with her teams that she manages. Um, but she gave an example about, you know, she would tell the kids, oh, I don't know how to get from A to B, you know, so here, can you figure it out? Here's a map. And and she said she would even let them get lost with her um, simply so they could figure, they could learn and they could figure something out. And I, I just, I thought that was incredibly patient of her and, I was just wondering your thoughts on that in terms of the ability to feel safe and make mistakes and how that ties in with the caregiver or teacher. Yeah. So I think we've been talking about, you know, dare to fail and, you know, you know, that making mistakes, like there's a lot of cliches around failing and, you know, my best successes are when I failed kind of thing. And I think a lot of people talk that talk, but they don't, it's not really in action. So like if a child fails a test, it goes on their report card, right? Mm-hmm. If, uh, you know, the stakes are really high and the talk is really like, doesn't match the reality of the situation. Like you can't get into graduate school without a 3.0, right? So right. it's not okay to fail, you know? So, so the cultural norms are very different than the talk. And I think there's a lot that has to shift in terms of, um, you know, kids are petrified of what the future looks like in terms of career paths or competitiveness. They're petrified. So when you say, you know, it's okay, you know, not do okay, the reality is it's really not. I mean, right. for, in many ways, it's not. So I think it's a really crazy mixed message. So let me start there. In terms of failing, I think it's provocative to say it's okay to fail, it's, you know, dare to fail. But we are always decision making and trial and error and testing and learning all the time, like to call it failing or making mistakes doesn't even do it justice because, you know, like that's how life is, how it is in general. Like Carol Dweck's mindset model, Mm -hmm. which is it's not about good or bad, right or wrong, failing or passing. It's more, do you have the capacity, the resilience, the determination, the point of view to say, I mean, I get this the first time, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. I'm going to get it. I'm not going to give up. And it's this idea of trying and feeling comfortable in trying. And that's where I think caregivers and educators and other people in the lives of kids can make a difference, which is showing that if you have a goal and you have an idea of how you're going to get there, chances are it's a theory. And you can try that theory, and sometimes that theory is going to work, and sometimes it's not. And the ability to be able to step back and say, okay, now I need to turn left when I thought I was going to turn right, mm-hmm. or I thought I had the skill, but I don't. I need to, need to gain it, or I need to find somebody that can work with me. You know, this creative problem-solving ability to be flexible and agile and to say, all right, I know where I'm going, and there's 10 ways to get there. Um, and if the first one didn't work, I'm not going to throw in a towel because – there's a lot more ways and maybe there's even more than 10. Um, so that's where I think attitude and also a sense of positive point of view, you know, glass half full, glass half empty really matters, you know, self-confidence versus feeling insecure or self-conscious, trusting yourself that you can get someplace. And I think that, that those are the best skill that I think is super important is the ability to know that you can trust yourself 
or you can find resources that can help you and that you don't kind of give up or give in um, when something doesn't go the way that you think it's going to go. Because that happens. I mean, it happens every day. Exactly. And to me every day. (laughs) (laughs) I know it happens to me. I was reading, um, Minsky had a book, Society of Mind, and it was like, he was writing uh, as he was trying to figure out artificial intelligence. And I guess he was actually married to a pediatrician. And so he was interested in child development and how it could, how he could leverage learnings from that to apply to artificial intelligence as he was trying to get, you know, a robot to be able to move and pick up something. And um, he, he wrote about, you know, the, the example of like a young child who goes out and plays in the mud. And if, the caregiver says, oh my, what a mess you've made, but this you must be, have been doing something really interesting. The impact that has on their ability to learn versus the caregiver who says, oh, what a horrible mess you've made. This was very bad. We need to clean this up. And I started thinking about that failure concept. And it's like in both cases, right? The, the child is just playing and getting messy and that's what kids do. But I think what he was trying to say in the, the book he had written was that, if you, the, the reaction of the caregiver can impact the learner for a very long time because they can confuse the response and say, okay, what I tried caused this frightful reaction. Therefore, I'm not going to try things in the future because I might get that response. Um, and I wonder how many of us have sort of a fear of trying baked in. And, and now we're telling people, don't be afraid to fail, but it's like, I don't know how many people are simply afraid to even start something sometimes. Oh, totally. I think that's totally true. You know, once you've been shamed because you messed it up and you got called on it, I think it's really, shame is a really damaging thing for any of us, but particularly for a child, when they feel less than, I think a natural coping skill is to try to never go there again, right? And it's so embedded and it's so deep. And, you know, for kids, kids connect the the dots in ways that we have no idea what their inner lives are, what they're thinking. So this this and this now means that, Mm. um, which may not be true at all. You know, you think about systems and how, you know, there's so many systems. When kids start to create their sense of system, they really start to navigate where they can and can't go and what they perceive as a system. So the world is not kind. People are mean. I can't try this because I won't be accepted. And I think peer criticism or peer review is so subtle. You know, it's like you wear a pair of shoes and some kid says, oh, look, your, your shoelaces are purple. That's so queer. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're shamed, right? And it happens in such little ways. Sometimes it's remarkable to me how fragile our spirits are um, and how disregarded they are. And it's, you know, you know that sort of sensitivity piece. I think it's easy to make children feel bad. Um, and they may never tell you they feel bad, but they feel bad. And that kind of information alone, I think sometimes weighs on moms. And even as I hear that, I think about 
it, you know, it makes you want to protect your child more and then makes the decisions around working or, you know, going back to work or staying home. It makes, I feel like the knowledge of the impact that one can have on a person actually makes it harder in some ways to think about putting your child in a lower quality childcare or a- anything along those lines. And I think that's something like, I don't know, I, I feel like a lot of us struggle with guilt around it. Um, and trying to, you know, because you, ultimately when you're working, you're trying to figure out the best path for your career and your development, but also for your family and your financial future. And so it, it's like you want the knowledge of how to care for your children. Um, but then that type of knowledge actually becomes something that can actually in some ways limit us or, or make us fearful of, of the choices that we're making. I know exactly what you mean. And it's almost like too much information because <laughs> um, it can be paralyzing and you don't know, you know, it's, like, is this good for me or bad for me? Or, you know, do I do this wrong or right? And, um, you know, I think being as present as you can as a parent is super helpful. And having a partner that you can talk things through or people in your life that you can sort of talk it through. I think as parents, we intuitively know when our kids are not, something's not right. Um, and you might not know what it is um, or a situation doesn't feel right and you're not quite sure exactly why. And I think following those instincts and hunches are super important. I'll, I'll tell you a story. When one of our kids was in fifth grade, mm-hmm. he um, has some learning differences. They were around auditory processing and executive function. And, you know, he's been like a real trooper his whole young life of going to um, get help with uh speech therapy and learning how to read because he couldn't hear the sounds and, mm. you know, just, but just like a trooper. And he, and periodically he would work with a learning specialist just to kind of track his progress and where he, where he was and all of that. So he'd gone to see this person for evaluation and um, she called me a couple of days afterwards and she said, we need to move Ben. We need mm-hmm. to move him from the school he's at. And I was like, well, he's happy here. He likes it. You know, he's, you know, he's doing okay academically. And she's like, he's losing his self-esteem. And I said, what? And she said, he's quiet. He's a quiet kid. He likes to go along and make sure that everybody's happy. That's a strength. But he is not feeling good. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, and she could see it in, his, in the evaluation, the way, you know, she evaluated it. And it was so subtle that I didn't see it mm. because he was so good at making sure that the world thought he was fine. And I think kids with learning differences, but we all have some kind of difference, right? So maybe you've got red hair or you wear glasses or, you know, but he was so good at um, showing up um, and finding, you know, being there, but deep inside he was feeling bad about himself. So we were able to move him to a school where he thrived and he started running and, um, you know, found a multi-sensory sort of hands-on learning school. Um, but I didn't see it um, because all the signs that I look at were not the right sign. And so, you know, that's, I know, so when you talk about that, I, you know, I always come back to that story of, so, but, but when we knew we talked about it, you know, as a family and we sort of, you know, it wasn't like we're yanking you from the school. Right. We were like, you know, this is a really good time to shift fifth to sixth grade. Um, let's give it a try. And, 
you know, those are really hard decisions because then you're leaving your friends behind. Um, but at the same time, you're not thriving. And so, you know, I think that's where parents really need to round the wagons and make sure the kids feel safe and trusted and they're part of, you know, especially those ages. But sometimes you just don't see it. And I think it's not good energy to spend a whole lot of time beating yourself up. It's more important to stay in the game and to, to be communicating with your child and the others around and, and making that kind of the way you do it. Um, yeah. But it's hard. It's painful. And so what do you think that, you know, I, I think it's such a gift that that particular teacher made that observation and you were able to, you know, and you and your family were able to make decisions based on that. That sounds like, you know, worked out really well for him um, and for your family. What do you think goes into that type of assessment? Like, how does, how does it, how does someone know that someone's self-esteem is damaged? I don't know that I would know what to look for, you know, beyond something incredibly dramatic, you know? So she is learning specialist and um, was doing um, different kinds of emotional measurements, metrics that are done in, you know, sometimes it's in play-based evaluations in asking questions, sort of, you know, you know, how are you doing in school? And, you know, what are the things that you like? What are the things you don't like? How, you know, how do you feel about this? And part of it, I think, is the way that, that she was really looking at it was to um, do a number of different kinds of assessments and then to sort of look at the picture. But it was very, very clear to her. Um, and they had also built a rapport over mm-hmm. time. So while she wasn't a therapist, um, she knew sort of his affect. And I think she felt that there was a shift in his affect when they got to talking about certain aspects of, um, you know, how does he feel when he takes a test? How does he feel when he gets the test back? And he had this real delta that was interesting um, where he um, would know he's going to do really well on the test and then it would not do, and then he wouldn't have. Mm. And so it was almost like a shock where he would, he would go in with an expectation of preparation and he would come out being shocked that he didn't meet that expectation and not know what happened, which is actually a pretty scary thing. Um, that unpredictability of, of, um, so instead of building confidence, it shakes your confidence in the next test. You're just slightly. And so I think she was able to evaluate some of that behavior. Um, but that's where, you know, there are, you know, when you feel like this is a specific example of, you know, a kind of a lifelong learning differences. But when she said it, I could get to that place of, you know, subtly, slink, like flick of an eye, him, you know, getting in the car after picking in carpool and saying, you know, how was your day? And you say, well, I didn't do good on the test, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd be like, oh, you'll do better next time. Right. That's what you say. But I didn't get to that piece of, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I feel really bad. Um, so sometimes, you know, you know, you don't see those things. Um, and, you know, who knows what would have happened. Let's just play that out. Who knows if he'd have stayed in sixth grade and, you know, what would it, it, again, it's never too late, right? That's my thing is that, you know, you ne- it maybe wouldn't have caught it in fifth grade, but we would have caught, we'd have seen it differently sort of um, emerge in sixth grade or or something could have shifted. So I also think there's not one right answer. Um, I think, you know, just being attentive to what's going on with your kids 
at any age is kind of a core um, organizing principle. And, um, and knowing that kids are always shifting and turning and, and what they say isn't necessarily what's happening with them. I think mm-hmm. that's another big knowing. I think it's so inspiring. I'm really, you know, I think you've already said so many things that are meaningful and resonates with me, but the, your message about it's never too late is something I feel like we don't talk about at all. And I always feel like we're kind of trapped in this and I think it's also, I mean, I see with women who do step out of the workforce, even for a little while, there's a confidence gap on coming back in. And I think we're kind of in, we all have this, we're really all taught this sort of very like linear approach to life. Like you go to this school, then you go to that school and um, there's these steps that you take. And I've found in my experience so far that while there are natural steps you take as part of being in society and whatnot, um, you can certainly go in a very wavy road and and it it, not everything follows you know a straight line and so the idea that you may you know you you're never too far along to help somebody on their journey is um it's just a really powerful idea because sometimes i think we also are quick to say well you know they didn't do well here so you know and you can give up on people um or lower your expectations for them um and so i think that's just incredibly inspiring the idea that you're never too late. how you know you also talked about being present what are some things you do or techniques that you have to be present it's really i feel like it's very hard to be present sometimes um because of the devices because of the 24/7 news things coming at us and so it's very easy to be future focused all the time. So how, how do you, what are some things you do to, to try to be present? Well, so I, I really crash at night. So at, so by eight or nine o'clock at night, I'm wiped out for sure. Um, so I really try to think, so, so for me, mornings are the time when, um, and my kids are older now, but, um, but, and but they're around, you know, mm-hmm. they're around quite a bit. Um, what I try to do is, you know, really use the morning and daytime. If, you know, I'll carve out, like, when I organize my schedule and I make meetings. Um, today's a really good example. Um, after this call, I'm going to spend an hour and a half with one of our kids who came over to bury his, um, he and his girlfriend's lizard. Oh, no. <laughs> and so we're going to, so I'm making, was making hot chocolate. And so I said, you know, great, let's just, you know, spend an hour catching up because you know so they had so a pet lizard it, they had a pet lizard named pin Aww. um so so you know who knows right so what i try to do is really um and i check in i check in with them all the time like usually on sundays we have a call um but throughout the week if i see an article or something that reminds me of one of them i just send it their way like i would with a friend you know right. i really um, try to remember things that are top of mind or if one's struggling with something and I see an article and I think, oh, you know, this seems like, like it might be helpful or insightful. Um, but I think it's the intention of um, being in relationship with your children, um, not caring for them, but being in relationship. Um, and that's true with younger kids too. I mean, there's there's a caring piece, but also you want to know them. You want them to know you. And, um, and they, all their influences are always, you know, we're always changing. Um, I don't think our core values change or our morals change, but I think 
you know, the way we engage in the world. We're always trying and testing and learning. So I think it's the commitment to the relationship um, as the mo- one of the most important relationships in your life. Um, and and that, I guess that's how I approach it. I think that's incredibly noble too, because I think there there is a tendency. It's I think one of the things that, like a weak point for a lot of people, and I know I've done this at different points too, is you have to stop yourself from projecting your own stuff onto your kids. And it's easy to do because they're right there. And um, and if you're in, to your point, if you're if you really view it as you're in a relationship with them, then you're really accepting them as a wholly separate person that you your job is to shepherd and grow, but to really be engaged with versus um, you know, I want you to do this because it will make me happy or because it will make our lives X. And that idea of being in a relationship is really powerful to think about. And, and it seems like a great, I really, I wish more people talked about that because I think that's a great framework for how to, how to think of your family and how to think of these little people that come into your world. And before you know it, they're grown up. Well, and, and you know, if you're really in a relationship that is, um, goes both ways and it's a healthy relationship you listen really carefully to what the other person's saying Mm -hmm. and you do read cues um, about what they might not be saying Um, and you celebrate the things that they're excited about um, and they celebrate the things that you're excited about Um, and and I I think you know you it's not just uh, the obligation of or responsibility or commitment, it's really, you know, you know them as people separate from them being your children, um, yet there's this, you know, unbelievable, um, invisible bond that you have, um, whether they're your biological children or your adopted children or your foster children or whatever they are, you know, that I think um, is is unconditional, but it doesn't, unconditional love doesn't make a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's and, and I think what I found that the more I invest in the relationships that are important to me, um, I mean, I take so many relationships for granted and, and I've got wonderful friends who are like, you know, you know, we're friends, no matter, I'm, I'm somebody's worst best friend, you know, <laughs> you get bu- you get busy and, you know, all that stuff or best worst friend. I don't know. But, but I think when you value relationships um, and you, make the effort, even if it's just a note to say, you know, it's two in the morning, I'm in California and I was thinking about you. How are you? How's your day? Mm-hmm. Um, um, as opposed to being so much about yourself, um, it's just, it just goes better. It's just, it, it, it's rich and, um, and enriching. And, um, you know, there's a connectedness as it, for me with adult children that, um, but even with younger children, you know, I mean, I loved having young kids. I, when my youngest went off to college, I tried so hard not to sob, mm. and I did. I was I just couldn't help myself. And they're like, "Mom, we're not leaving forever." And I was like, "I know, but this is over. You know, this piece is over." And you know, that's the other thing is that the kids are not home. It, you know, eighteen years goes really fast. Yeah, um, faster than you can even believe time could move. Um, and I love, I love being a parent. Um, and I, you know, and I love working, um, you know, and I, you know, I, I, you know, I love life. And, and so I think all people, you know, feel that way. Moms, I think understand 
the gift of life because you carry a baby or you inherit a child. Um, but the gift of a, a child is, is such a sacred thing. Yeah, I know. I, I, my kids are teenagers now, and I know when they were little, I was the one who was always like, let's go, let's get on the bus because they were all still there. And now I can, I can see the, that big milestone coming of college and everything. And it's like the first time I think in the journey that I'm getting more emotional because I can see that that's, that's here. But um, I think cultivating, continuing to cultivate that relationship is something that is really beautiful because now, in, you know, you've had an amazing career. You've been CEO of your own company. You're at Johns Hopkins, right? You've done a number of amazing things over the years and, and, and worked very hard for it and had some amazing successes. Um, did you find that your kids celebrated your success as well along the way? Yes. The, my kids are um, they're really proud of, of me. Um, um, you know, I had a, my first company was a company called Curiosity Kits, and my kids used to come and, you know, help me design um, hands-on learning materials. Um, and, you know, they were in all the photo shoots. And um, so they've been really involved in my work. Um, you know, they helped to work camps. My one son and I, um, you know, spent a lot of time in domestic shelters with kids and moms um, making things, um, using the arts as a, as a way to heal. Um, and so they, they know what I do and they have been involved in what I do. Um, the, I think the other side of that is when you have a really successful parent, um, it's hard to, to think that you can live up to it um, or that you have to live up to it mm. um, and, and or, or that, you know, you can or you can't do the same kinds of things. Um, like I've got one son that's a composer and a musicologist, um, and, um, the youngest one is still trying to figure out, um, in health sciences, which, you know, is he going to go down on uh, a therapeutic arts track and OT track, you know, just, and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of like, you know, is in my, is in my orbit. And so, um, you know, I think, I think sometimes it's harder for you know, kids to, to think that they can achieve the success of a successful parent. Um, and so, you know, I see that every now and then. Um, but mostly I think they're just trying to find their way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they do. They're very proud of me. Um, um, and we celebrate. I mean, and we celebrate their victories. So, you know, it, it kind of, I think it cuts all, all different ways. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll share stuff with me about things that they think I'll be, in, I'm interested in too. And, um, and they also broaden what I do. Um, you know, I think technology has been a big, um, you know, in their life, you know, they grew up, were early technology, you know, they're mm-hmm. 26 and 30 now. And so they were kind of, you know, front line of technology as kids. And so they've taught me a lot about, you know, how to embrace technology um, in my own work. And, you know, that's just, exponentially changing and growing um and you know i i've i've always said you know i could be happy um you know when the when the sun goes down the lights go off so right. you know, so 
If you were giving advice to a younger woman or, or a man, you know, coming up today who's contemplating having a family or just starting out, you know, what, what advice would you share on, on some of the questions that come up, whether, you know, you should lean in or lean out or, you know, the, all the different choices that we have now, um, what would be some advice that you would share? I think follow your instinct, follow your gut, um, and, and don't get distracted by, you know, the river sticks where people are saying, you know, do this, do that. I need help. I, you know, if you don't do this, you won't blah, blah, blah. Um, I think cutting your own path. And I, and I say that as a, you know, kind of a, uh, an entrepreneur who has always kind of said, I can't do it that way. I got to do it my own way. And, um, and that has worked for me. And I think it works for most people. If you feel good about that and, and that doesn't mean that you, you know, start a company, but I think you've got to follow your instinct and you have to be really honest with the people around you. Um, you know, if you're in a work environment that isn't going to let you, um, take a mental health day or take a kid day or go to a field trip, um, that's worth considering whether that's the right place for you. I mean, I think you have to know what's important to you. You have to know what you value and what your, um, you know, what your tolerance is for working outside of that, that lane, uh, that path. Um, I always say I have a very narrow path. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I really, things that are important to me are deep and I don't go I try to stay to those things because I don't think you can do everything. Um, I don't even think that's the right paradigm. Um, so I think it's follow your instinct and follow, um, you know, you know, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you go, I should have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, I should, I, I should have gone to that. I should have dropped my son off, not send him in with, you know, grandma because it would have, you know, right. Yeah. And then you just self correct. You know, these are, these are, you know, if you self, if you keep, if you sort of make these little adjustments when you're honest and really honest with yourself, it's painfully hard sometimes because you can rationalize a lot of things and justify a lot of things. But when you're really true to yourself, I think it works better for everybody. And that doesn't always make everybody happy, but I think it works better long term. Um, and I think that's, a, that's something to teach your kids, too. I think that's a fantastic message, just helping people understand that the, the path that might have been described by the masses is not necessarily your path. And it doesn't mean that you're in the wrong direction or go, you know, going the wrong way um, if you're following your trusting your instincts. I think that's I think that's really valuable. I think it, I think it changes everything, um, but it means you have to listen to yourself and you have to have time to know what you feel and what you think. Um, I, I, I do my best work when I sleep. I always wake up and I go, okay, no, I know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think it's through dreaming and, um, um, you know, letting the day process. I don't, I'm not an instant processor. I have to, I have to sleep in order to process. Um, so, so I, so I don't, in my family, everybody here knows I don't make any decisions after eight o'clock at night and you can ask me anything and I won't, I'll tell awesome. you no more. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's sure it has really served me well because I've gotten into trouble like where I'll say okay and then I know immediately I don't really know that that's what I think but I don't know what I think because I'm too tired oh my gosh I love that you have that rule so one so you're one of your goals ideas is no no decisions after eight and then you and what other do you have any other um frameworks like that like morning routines or or habits that 
you know contribute to your overall happiness and the, the health of your family? I do think routines are really important and I stress them with like all of my kids, you know, getting good night's sleep, having a routine in the morning where you know what things you're going to do. You, you know, I, like I, you know, I stretch every day and, and that's, and, and that's and sort of meditate every morning. That's mm-hmm. a really important thing to kind of set the energy for my day. And on the back end, I really do like to sort of, I come in at the end of the day, I always have a cup of tea or almost every day. And, you know, I'll sit and I'll read, I'll do a couple little things. But I think this idea of rituals and traditions and routines that are for your well-being and, and energy, you know, it's like, how, how do you bring yourself to the world? Mm. Um, and what do you need to do? Like, during the day, I'm flat out, but I'm not burned out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged and I want to be engaged yep. um, with, whether it's with my kids or with anybody. So I try to use that morning time to make sure that I have the intention of the day. And then at the end, I really try to really honor is shutting down. Yeah. Um, my husband and I like to dance. And so we don't, we're not good dancers. Like necessarily, <laughs> we are good dancers, but we like, but we like to dance. And sometimes we'll just like dance at night and that's really fun. So you know, I think joy is really important mm. and in everything that you do. So I think that positive energy, it doesn't mean that things are hard, aren't hard, you know, that some things are way more challenging than others. But choosing, I think, optimism over negativism, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting it done versus, you know, I'm not going to try just matters. And, and sometimes, you know, not deciding until you know what you think. I think that's the other big lesson is there's so many choices and people want you, you know, I'm I'm right now backed up 300 emails from Monday Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and then I get the second or third email saying, did you get my email? And, you know, every now and then I'll just say I did, but I'm not, you know, I'm backed up and I'm always really honest to say I'm, you know, I'm doing the best I can. And, and, but I try not to get consumed by, this idea of the river sticks. Everybody needs something right away and going towards your passion. I can't thank you enough. Knowing that you're 300 emails behind, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. And I just think you have, you just have such a beautiful outlook on life. And I think that your, your approach is, is really helpful. And in, I know your words were meaningful if to no one else to me to right now to, to think about how I'm approaching my family and my kids. So thank you so much. Well, thanks That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com, or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening, and have an awesome week. 